session. Uh, we're very happy to have Anastasia Okara here from uh, the Netherlands. Uh, she went to NHPV and uh, is a deep mind in proceduralism. So uh, we're uh, very happy to have her here. She's going to walk us through the readability of procedural models. Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm very happy to welcome you to the presentation, Believability and Procedure Modeling, Layering of Simple Rules. Uh, it's kind of broken up in two parts. So in the first part, I will briefly cover two projects as an example of how I approach deliverability in the project's specific challenges. And then we will go through the scene that I built specifically for this presentation, which is with this mirror. And we kind of will deconstruct the algorithms I used to create it. So before we dive into it, uh, a quick introduction for those who do not know me. My name is as Chris introduced me, Anastasia. I have just graduated from NHTV in Netherlands and had my graduation at EA Ghost Games. I'm an author of Procedure Lighthouse's tutorial series and just recently started as Houdini Vax instructor at PG Society. So um, my main passion is procedure modeling, <laughs> surprise. And the main reason I find proceduralism so fascinating is that in my opinion, it exposes this captivating relationship between artists and computer. We often think of art as a very human skill, something that can probably only be felt in times. And when it comes to feelings, we often regard them as something impossible to break down into a set of rules or create a system. However, if our goal is to create a system that's capable of automating the process, we have to ultimately construct our own perception of what makes things appealing, realistic, beautiful. Moreover, we cannot just simply copy one occurrence we have to understand what makes us perceive the object as it, as it is, and to believe in the abstractions that we create as an artist to be as complex as the reality. We have to identify how we humans arrive at certain evaluations, which are such an integral part of ourselves that often we do not realize how we arrive at certain judgments. So to, to test the statements, one of the main challenges presented by this project was creating a procedural system capable of automating every single decision. So what you see here is procedural all the way from the silhouette to the final shading. So the system decides on everything, where to place the stairs, what window to choose, like how to construct the pier and roofs, everything. So in that sense, it was a very unique challenge because I had to ultimately deconstruct my own art, art workflow and my own thought process and automate it into a set of rules. And while doing this project, I had a lot of just revealing moments. For example, uh, we humans are great pattern recognition machines. Like we face huge amount of data on daily basis. So for example, if I show you a picture of a sunflower and I tell you to memorize it, and then I show you the whole field of them, you don't really have to look at every single sunflower to grasp the idea that the whole field consists of them. You accept that there is a certain variation and imperfection and offset from the perfect models of sunflower you have in your head, but you do not store all those variations as separate uh, objects, but rather acknowledge the concept. However, that is where the tricky part comes in, because those are not sunflowers. <laughs> those are actually daisies. And you can see that those flowers are actually a bit different, but you can say that maybe they're not too much different. But where does this too much threshold lies? Because perhaps our abstract model of a sunflower is yellow flower with brown middle, and so happens that this flower kind of looks like it, but there are also 10 rubber ducks in this. So <laughs> and there's definitely not anything like a sunflower. So to me, this is an example of our astonishing ability to create abstract, complex models of reality 
in an instant from very limited information we have. Therefore, when we create an illusion of reality, we have to take these patterns into consideration, these patterns that we face on a daily basis. And we also have to keep in mind the importance of our brain's assumption of imperfection and the variation, as it is a big part of our models, which is, I find quite, quite curious because we have these perfect models that but it's very efficient and optimized because it doesn't just take a lot of space in our mind. And yet when we see something perfect, we're like, oh, something is off. <laughs> so but how far should we go? Like what kind of level of detail should we account for? And again, this example shows that sometimes you can get away with rubber ducks instead of daisies and daisies instead of sunflowers. So let's talk about level of abstraction. So whenever I think of an object, I like to imagine that there is this main abstract concept the bare bones, the main feature that identifies the object and allows us to identify and recognize it in the most primitive form. This way we're capable of reading signs on the streets, connecting with characters from animated movies, or recognizing this as a cat, even though like this has four legs lined up in one dimension. So for us, it's not a problem to identify that this is a cat, meaning that the concept of a cat in our brain is a very far and more, much more abstract than reality itself. And inside of that main abstract, we have lower levels of abstraction that help us to create a more complete image of the subject. And we can kind of zoom in and out of this level of abstraction, so to say. You can think of it as LODs in game, but created by your brain at all times. So, ooh, that was an empty slide for some reason. So, so to give you an example, uh, we'll ask you to visualize for a second. So imagine just the minimum that you will consider as a tree probably has a stem and some foliage, a couple of branches maybe even. So while keeping the whole in mind, imagine all the complex branching and intertwining, all the cracks in the bark and small insects and fungi, and now consider all the leaves and each one of them is slightly different than the other. And now imagine all the cells in this complex system interacting with each other. So have you managed to keep the whole tree in mind? Because if you had, I'm really impressed with your RAM and your mind of your brain because it is, it is a lot of computation for your mind to keep everything. And that's why we have this amazing ability to just simplify everything down to its core. And I call it kind of, we construct a hierarchy of simplicity. So when it comes to procedure modeling, I like to kind of think of it as a reverse diagram. So we start with the main abstraction model. The bare bones is what you recognize as an object. And then you layer these additional levels of details that trick the brain to perceive this illusion we create as to be something complex as reality. Where are the empty slides here? So um, yeah, just on the example of the lake houses, you can say that the silhouette is the core. So the silhouette consists of walls, roofs, balconies, and it's also broken into further subparts of the procedural um, modules like doors, wood patterns, and we can continue breaking it down all the way to the nails if we need to. So here are the stages of the lake houses and the, so that they went through the end. From the silo generation, then we place procedural, procedural replace modules, we generate all the additional uh, wood patterns, and then final shading and distortion. And we just keep layering these rules, which are very simple if you look at them in just separately. But their combination creates this illusion of reality. Therefore, we have to establish correct relationship between all these layers, because if we do, we have like a very happy dog wagging its tail because all the dependencies are correct. But when you have your dependencies wrong, you may end up with something like this, when you have a tail controlling the whole dog. And therefore, when we have something doesn't work, and maybe even on a technical level, but just as a concept, I like to ask myself, Am I dependent is wrong? Am I trying to control the thing from the, from the wrong point? 
And that's kind of what happened with this project, the second project I'm going to talk about, Procedural Realistic Tree RNDs. This is a project I was busy uh, during my time at EA. It was a kind of two months project. And it has put me in a situation where I had to rethink my approach like 360 degrees. So the whole, the whole goal of the project was to create realistic procedural trees that would be capable of creating various tree families with automatic LOD generation for in-game use. So I started looking into L systems. However, just something just didn't look right. Something didn't click and didn't align with the level of believability I was aiming for. So I asked myself, what do I mean when I say realistic procedural tree? As artists, we are often tempted to mimic the outcome without understanding the phenomena behind it. However, it is considered a poor practice. As a character artist, you want to know how anatomy works. As a lighting artist, you want to be able to understand how the light bounces and distributes. So why trees are any different? Therefore, understanding of the subject, that what allows us to achieve excellency in mimicking. So I, to appreciate what realism means in a context of tree creation, I had to conduct a thorough research to ultimately understand how a tree grows and develops in real life. Therefore, I kind of created a system where I basically simulated an abstraction of real life rules in order to achieve believability. And it gave me a lot of inspiration. And one of the biggest game changers was this following the realization that I can sum up as don't mimic the outcome, mimic the underlying phenomena that will get you to the outcome, which means that I I didn't use any L systems or space colonization algorithms because as powerful as they are, they were trying to uh, mimic the final appearance but not the dynamic organism. So I ended up building something completely custom based on biological approach of photosynthesis, um, strife for survival, hormones. And here's an example of just the research I kept close to me during the development. Thankfully, I'm not the only person who wondered about the tree development. And just an amazing amount of studies and effort is has, has been put into this subject. And there's a lot of points, but their combination makes a huge difference, as well as our own design, how to abstract all of these points into the set of rules and this hierarchy of simplicity I was talking about earlier. So now we'll show you how the tool works in action. This is an overview I already walked you through. So the tree is simulated with yearly cycle, and we have a, a lot of controls based on biology. So we have things like all the hormones down there and we also have this we can switch between preview and of the skeleton because that's what we're actually inputting when we're creating LODs which I'm going to show a bit later so for example the apical dominance is a hormone responsible of whether the tree looks like in cone shape or bushy or for example when I increase the energy consumption you saw that there were more leaves because it is logical if the tree has to produce more energy it has to have more leaves so this kind of dependencies, when they, like, initially the system was very simple, so that the more layered, uh, layers I put in, the more complex, the more believable looking it, it, it became. So for example, it has a system where it recognizes whether it's going to be in an energy crisis in the following year, and there, therefore you can see these younger branches appear on the bottom of the stem. Because in order to prevent itself from dying, it has to wake certain dormant buds up to produce more energy. And the curious, curious thing about the geometry avoidance was that I kind of got it for free. I was just curious how it would, the system would react if I would put like a box or a neighbor, a neighboring tree. And it was already avoiding it because all the rules were there. It was just not efficient to grow in, inside of the box because there is no sunlight. So that's what, I didn't have to code anything. And it was kind of really, really interesting to see this type of behavior. Because when you have all the correct rules set up, the system would behave appropriately. 
So here I'm just showing some older uh, generation trees. This one is 27 cycles, and you can see how complex the branching can get because there was so much selection process going on. Because, for example, if the tree has a branch that doesn't produce enough energy, there is no reason for it to keep it. It's just going to prune it for it because that's the most efficient way to survive. So here's also a test when trees growing together and also avoiding geometry. And this is the tree, by the way, I'm going to use for the test in engine. And here's an example of the LODs. Fortunately, I cannot talk a lot about it. Uh, but what I can say is that all the poly count, uh, texel density, texture sizes were all comparable to the manually built trees. And this approach also had a couple of advantages. Well, first of all, uh, it had seamless transition between the LODs. So now we just switch between four or five LODs, I think, and you, you, cannot, see the, you cannot see the difference. Another, uh, another benefit of this approach is that just from the same set of rules, we could create a, a huge variety of families just because all of them follow the same rules. Whereas if we had to use L system, L system has very rigid rules. So in order to create all the families, we would have to create separate rules for every single one of them, which is just a lot of work. And with this approach, we are able to just create this framework that kind of unites all the vegetation. And we also could conduct uh, tests like this when we had 350 plants growing together and dynamically influencing each other as they grow. And then we could generate all the LODs. So summing up the first part of this presentation, uh, I'd like to emphasize how amazing our brain is as a source of inspiration for algorithms. And the best part is that it is always with you. Well, I hope it is always with you. Uh, I assume that is the case for the audience here. <laughs> But yeah, observing your own decision-making process, your thought patterns, your perception of objects will not only strengthen you as a procedure artist, but also help you to reevaluate your own workflow and optimize it. In that sense, I encourage you to get to know yourself as a kind of biological computational machine and, ap and appreciate an amazing computer you're carrying inside of your skull every day. So treat it well. Say it like, good brain. But however, as it is important to look inside, it is also crucial to inspire from the outside by conducting research and examining all the experience and knowledge that was gathered by others before you. Due to our unique backgrounds, we have an amazing ability to think outside of each other's boxes, so to say. In that sense, you do not miss an opportunity to kind of explore other people's minds and the way they work and their experience and expertise. Often it will lead you to a better understanding of the subject you're working on, as well as to new connections and creative outputs. And then after you have these two amazing sources, that is where your design decision comes in. How to take these sources and organize them into a set of rules or an algorithm. So imagine like a more abstract example that you want to get to a treasure island. So these two sources is you actually finding the location of an island, learning as much as you can about it, contacting a creepy guy in a pub who gives you a suspicious looking map, not a scripted event at all. <laughs> so, and your design decision is constructing a ship that would take you there and transport all this treasure as efficiently as possible back to the mainland where you can actually make use of it. And of course, it is important that you, you find the correct island in the first place so you don't build a ship that would take you nowhere. So I hope this part was insightful for you and will help you when it comes to creating procedure modeling uh, solutions in your projects. And let's move on to the practical example. So that is the scene I created specially for the presentation. I'm not very good at the name, so if you, if you have any suggestion except for the demo scene, please let me know. Um, and I want to give my special thanks to Max Behrens for his uh, inspiration and support during this mini project. Thank you, Max. And initially, I wanted to make it beginner friendly, but a quick disclaimer, I failed. <laughs> so, <laughs> but my goal here is not to show you how to make something simple, no. Because you, like, there are so many tutorials and amazing resources, you can learn all the basics yourself. 
Now, my goal here is to show you that you can create something complex with very simple rules. And it is my motivation to inspire you that you can do it as well as showing that in its core, it's amazingly simple. So um, here's like a small doodle I made for the Vex and Houdini course, where I wanted to illustrate this misconception or even a fear I face a lot that you have to climb this like Everest, Everest of knowledge before you can be creative or make complex looking systems. But I really disagree with it because in my mind, what already makes you a superhero is your ability for creative solutions and problem solving and your imagination for algorithms. That is the golden mine. Eventually, yeah, you might feel like you need to get into VEX or OpenCL, but that is not a necessity at all for you to start being awesome at procedural modeling. And Houdini is just amazing environment for it because it eliminates this wall be between art and programming. So coming back to the demo scene, whenever I start a project, I'm just, yeah, I'm a big Houdini fan, as you probably guessed. I'm just amazed every time how flexible it is because to build the scene, like the scene itself, not, like, I'm not talking about shading or compositing, but it took me just a couple of days. And all the algorithms that I'm going to show you took me one, two hours maximum. And by one, two hours, I also mean brainstorming, trying out, failing a couple of times, and then finding what is working. And just the ability to change everything in a non-destructive fashion allowed me to iterate through the scene and kind of create the final look I was searching for. So let me show you that everything is done procedurally. You can change every parameter without breaking anything. And if you don't like the arrangement of books, you don't like the picture frame, you don't like the rims, you can just, you just change it and everything is updated for you. And I, th I find it just absolutely, it just allowed me to build the scene very, very quickly. So let's move on to actually looking how every asset is created. And the biggest one, is the mirror. And oh, just, a, just a quick warning because basically uh, I'm going to focus on the algorithms themselves here and the mindset behind construction of the algorithms. So if you want to see the inner workings or you want to just look at the code or specific node, let me know. I'm going to be in the lounge. You just ping me and we can open the scene and I will explain that to you. So moving to the mirror. So the mirror was one of the very first assets. Initially, I actually wanted to make the whole second part just about it and just reconstruct how it, is, how it was made. But then I started making the environment and the scope kind of just blew up. So the mirror has three parts. It is a base shape that I'm demonstrating now. It, I'm just taking a circle and I'm pushing it through a sinus function, which is like right here. And there is a, you can control the offset. You also, we also have an additional control of the, how much the offset is in the strings. It kind of gives you an additional ability to art direct. And I just, I think I'm gonna just, yeah, put everything to one so you see only the sinus function. So yeah, that's, that's how the base uh, curve was constructed. So yeah, we, I have this golden spiral. I made it in the digital asset because I'm using in this project a lot. Also we have offset strings, we have all these parameters, but I think in this example I'm just using the default one. Yeah, indeed I am. So I'm just placing the spirals on two tips, just as it's just for our direction. I transform it because of the scale that I'm going to use later. I create the outer, um, external ring where I just mirror it, place the curves, the same golden spiral. I'm going to talk about, by the way, the placement uh, and explain the algorithm as well as the meshing. So I have a couple of parameters and we have the meshing. I kind of froze all the snows because it could take a couple of minutes to cook and I didn't want you to wait through all this time. So, and this is just, this is the inner circle. Also very simple, I just took a profile. I kind of sweep it along the curve. I also didn't want it to look as if it's one single piece, so I kind of uh, used Boolean to kind of cut it. So it looks like when it was constructed, the craftsman just actually made separate pieces, and I just polybevel the Boolean parts. And the polyplane is uh, very simple. It's just for the mirror uh, 
material itself. So let's talk about the algorithm. Let's talk about the fun part of placing those curves on the mirror. So let's say this is our starting curve. And it has normals that go along its tangent, which is easily done with polyframe node. If you change the tangent attribute to n, which is, uh, can you, oh, I can't, can't see my mouse, but there it is, the tangent. If you change it to n, because uh, by default I think it's tangent something, I don't remember the name correct, uh, exactly, but it would stand for normals. So you, this is how you write this information to normals. Then we placed a new spiral uh, at random point along the normal, which is done with copy to points node and selecting a random point. I, is there tons of ways to do it? I just use scatter and I just put it to only make it only one point for me, please. And it would also have tangent normals after we apply the polyframe. And this kind of already expands the area of possible next random points for the future curves. But we can have a situation where it happens something like this. And this is, we don't want that because it, it creates this intersection and we want to avoid that. So the way we check for it is we use the amazing node, which is called intersection analysis, which gives us the points of intersection. And the way we kind of um, look whether this happened is just we use a switch node and we just um, input that look up whether intersection analysis had any points. And by the way, in h 16 this is like amazing new feature. You can add spare parameter where you can link any node and then you can query it with minus one or minus two for in spare parameter number one and so on. So let me show you how this works out of Houdini. So we start with a circle. I just, uh, I just made this kind of, I had to have some kind of starting curve. So again, the golden spiral and replace everything with this algorithm I just described to you. It's kind of in two stages. It's kind of preparation stage, which is green, and the bottom one is actually placing. So again, I'm just for the art direction, I'm placing this curve. I'm creating the T-scale just so every curve I place is slightly different uh, size. So here we're gonna look just on one example. I'm gonna look how I'm placing only one single one uh, curve. So this is generation control. Uh, yeah, I'm probably expanding every time I'm placing something because I don't want the curve to be exactly on the previous curve. This kind of allows me to have a slight offset. So when I have the point, I have kind of main placement and secondary placement. For the main placement, I'm just placing this main curve. And we kind of have two cases because we can place it uh, oriented like that or oriented in the other direction. So here to see because it's already not correct, but basically you can place it like that or like that. And the way we check it again is intersection analysis. So here we didn't have any intersection. Here we had a couple of three points of intersection. That is why this uh, switch node didn't even give us any result. As I said, yeah, it, it didn't go through the rules we established. And then I do secondary placement just for the additional detail. It's absolutely the same thing. It's just that I carved the initial, the main curve. <coughs> I, I offset it based on its uh, point number. And basically I go through the same check for intersection that I just showed you before. And that's how it's done. And I'm just uh, saying how many times I want this to be done. Yeah, so you can have three times and sometimes you might not get all the three curves because if it did intersect with something, our system will just discard it. So then we randomly rotate it to, to, like, along the other axis so it's not just 2D. And that's pretty much, much it. We put 150 iterations but we're not gonna get 150 curves because in some cases, again, if our curve intersects with something, it is discarded. So now how's it down to the meshing? So again, we take what we have with all the curves and we just go through every single primitive, through every single curve. We create a UV plane, which I'm gonna dive into and show how it's done. 
So basically, we take our curve. I rotate it back because it's just easier for me to, um, to, sk to skin it. And I basically, with copy two points, I'm just placing this line which I soft transform to give it more like this shape because that's I wanted to follow all my curves. It's kind of be kind of extruded inside of it. And I just skin it, I UV it, and I'm going to talk about UVs a bit later in the presentation. And then I basically project a, uh, another geometry onto this plane. So I have this geometry, I unwrap my uh, polyplane that you saw before, and I project based on UVs, I project the 2D mesh, this kind of the shape on the plane. And I do it twice with a slight offset. This is just a custom peak because usually peak gives you a very uniform result. I want it to be more offset uh, at the bottom and less at the top, so I kind of made a custom peak. And then I just project twice, so we have two pieces of this kind of leaf shape, and I just bridge them. That's it. And then we, it is, this process is repeated for every single curve. And for the main curve, I, I just use polywire. <laughs> polywire is really nice. So anyhow, whenever I can get something for free, I take it. <laughs> so uh, then I just uh, go um, put it through VDBs because I wanted to um, kind of solidate it. And I really like, and uh, especially in wood carvings, when you have it's like they're not really perfect. And that's what I wanted kind of to achieve with uh, VDBs. So that is how the mirror is constructed. So now we'll move on to book generator. And I'll have a sip of water. <laughs> This one, I'm quite proud of it. I know books generations are done to death. <laughs> but basically, initially, when I was just constructing this scene, I was just under pressure of time. So at first, I started placing the books manually. And man, I forgot how tedious manual labor is. <laughs> because it's been a while, and now I remember why. So I, did a, I decided that, OK, I would rather spend an hour making a procedural solution for it than half an hour placing it by hand, and then something will change, and I would have to redo it. Plus, it's just, it's just more fun. So let me show you the, how the digital asset worked. So this is the controls you have. Of course, you can specify how many books you have. And all the angles and declines are calculated uh, based on the previous book. So there is no dynamics. It's just pure math. So maximum angle is responsible for the maximum total book slope. And the angle chance controls whether the book is inclined relative to its previous neighbor or just simply inherits the previous angle. So here I'm just showing a couple of setups like yeah, making only five books and different maximum angles. So first I put it quite high as AC, and you can see the different um, setups you can get with it. So yeah, just uh, decrease the maximum total angle, and all the books just snap because you're not allowed to slope anymore. So backwards chance is just I wanted to add this additional feeling that these books were not placed perfectly. So sometimes we get very lazy, so we don't place the book <laughs> facing the cover. <laughs> so I wanted to add it too. So, and you have all these ratio controls. I, put, I based it on ratio because when I was doing it, I researched all the possible ratios of the books. And a lot of the times, the way the book dimensions are, are written down, they're written down with a ratio. So that's kind of what I went with as well. Beautiful. And um, now I'm going to show you the UV part. I'm, I'm going to use a texture with book covers. I'm not sure if I'm showing the UV layout itself. It doesn't look like it, but basically it's just an atlas. It's uh, 10 streaks that the books are just switching. And that's, that's pretty much it. 
So you can get, um, you can basically have this variation of 10 books based on the UV position that got assigned by a random chance. And if you make the book very thick, it, because they are always assigned the same UV space, this texture will just stretch to fit to the book. So the fun part, <laughs> how does it work? So how do we calculate all this math behind the angles? So let's imagine this is an outcome we want to get. And instead of trying to like uh, carry all this geometry every time, well, we will store everything in just points. So we just have one point for every book, which will store all the attributes we need. So like direction, height, width, and thickness. With that attributes, we can calculate the top right point where the book would end. And from that point, we're gonna cast a ray to intersect with our ground at a, at a random angle. This is gonna be an angle of our future book. So the point where we intersect it with the ground is the starting point of our future book. And we already have the direction, which is the ray we just casted. So if our book is the same height or higher, we are fine because the point where those books will touch is already the one we found, the yellow one. However, if it is lower, we have a problem because if we keep it the way it is, the book is gonna be floating. It's not gonna touch with the previous one. So the way we solve it is we take the tip of our future book <laughs> and we just array it in the same direction as the direction of our previous one, which is just straight down in this case. We calculate the offset and based on this offset, we just move our, we just move our book and that's, that's pretty much it. And then we can calculate all the attributes we need, such as thickness, and we just start again. And we do it again and again and again until we have enough books or until we exceed this angle, max angle. So let's see how it works inside of Houdini. So let's break the digital asset. So yeah, it consists of two parts. So the green part is a point data generation. So we start with, origin, uh, with just one point, and I'm just, I think I'm hiding the, yeah, the origin. So we start always with one point, and then based on this point, we generate new points. So if I increase the number of books, you see everything we need is just stored in points. We do not carry any geometry because that is just an unnecessary calculation. It can get really messy. And in the second, the blue part, we just we generate all the meshes we need. So now I'm going to go through the mesh part because I already uh, went through the algorithm of the points. Any seconds now? Okay. So we, again, we take just every point and we create a mesh, it is very simple. So we have a grid that feeds uh, on the dimensions from the point because we have all the attributes and we have just two cases where it's either backwards or like it's facing the cover to us or it's facing the pages to us. And that's pretty much it, it's very simple. It's just a couple of poly extrudes and then I'm just unwrapping um, with this uh, to fit to the atlas. And that's the input grid. And I just poly bevel, I deform it and this is a don't look at the left part, it's just it was a bit interesting uh, workaround I had to do to inherit the groups correctly after the subdivision. But basically I'm just deforming it to give it a uh, feel of an older book and I place it onto the point and that's pretty much it. So now let's move on to the wallpaper pill. So as an input we fit it any surface and we can control the ratio zero match edge lengths, the scale of the peel pieces, the peel chance, and the peel count. Uh, we can make it, uh, like the, we can change the directions, we can make it like face even perpendicular to the scale, we can even make it different directions if we'd like to. And again, just it's purely SOPS, pure calculation in SOPS. So uh, we can define how refined the pieces are. 
total amount of them, and then just because I'm using the bend node to create the bending, so I just promoted all the parameters from there. So you can uh, kind of scale them a bit as if they're shrinked because of, I don't know, moisture, and you can create how smooth their bend is. And again, you can create a lot of them, you can create smaller amount of them. And I used kind of that for both our wallpaper and also the peeling of paint on the chair. It's kind of was quite nice that I could reuse this setup. So, the way it works and the way it's built. Again, as I said, we start with the surface. We just scale it at first to create that ratio. We just break it down with Voronoi, and then we just scale back to create this kind of stretching. You can visualize the pieces. And the way the pieces are done, because I kind of do it in two steps. First, I break it with Voronoi, and then I also scatter the points. And I, as every point has its own unique ID, and I'm just transferring the IDs to the broken pieces of Voronoi. And those are my pieces, not the Voronoi pieces, but these new ones with the ID. So if I visualize those, I just uh, visualize the ID number. You can see that they all inherit like fours there. And this is 17th. So scale this back, use two pieces. Now we distort them a bit, just so to, they're not as perfectly broken down. So in that sense, uh, you kind of you can also use a just a new boolean to break this for you. I kind of went a bit old school in that sense. And again, yeah, you can. Uh, I kind you also I made a control to avoid so it doesn't distort the boundary of our surface, and you can say how much you want the distortion to happen. So in that sense, I think it would be actually better with Boolean. So things to improve. Uh, yeah, just a, UVs is just a straight projection, which I saw that was wrong, so I'm fixing it as I'm recording. <laughs> but yeah, and now the meshing part. So basically, again, we just take every single piece we clean it up because we do not need all these extra, extra <coughs> edges. We bend it, which is also is very simple because uh, when we bend it, again, we project based on UVs, and I'm kind of creating this construction plane again because it is much easier to control than actually trying to bend the piece. And the construction plane is quite, quite curious because I take the piece, but how do we create a perfect bounding box for it, considering that they're all at weird angles, and sometimes the angle is not exactly the direction where we want to bend it. So we take the direction where we want to bend, we place these two lines perpendicular to each other, and what we do, we just ray our piece onto those lines, and this way we can see where the extremuses lie. So we only keep those, and those are the construction lines of our uh, construction plane. So yeah, so we have this as a perpendicular, we kind of establish the bounding box, and the same for the other one, and now we have this, which, and our piece fits, fits perfectly in there. So we also use this construction line to determine where our bend starts. So we kind of, we carve it a bit on a, on a random value, and we feed it to the bend, and that's where our, like, this bend starts. So if I remove the channel, and put just my custom value, you can see how this, the effect it has. So that is pretty much it, and again we project based on UVs, and run it for every, for every piece. 
And that is pretty much it for the whole paper. So last but not least, RIMS generator. So I'm going to deconstruct it on the example of one of the painting frames. So we have all these controls of different profiles and we just sweep them along the curve. And by the way, if you're interested how to make these profiles, there's a very, um, very good uh, tutorial by Kim Hulsens. So do check out his YouTube channel. It's, it's a very creative use of L systems for generating this type of different um, profiles. So yeah, uh, now I'm just uh, distorting the, <laughs> the circle to show you that the UVs will always follow. They always follow the same um, dimension. And I'm gonna show you how this uh, digital asset of UVing works in a second. I will break down the algorithm for you. This, yeah, as I'm showing, this is just an L system, the profile. And the UVs, I'm, I'm going to explain it in a second with actual pictures, so it's gonna be easier for you to understand what is happening. So let's actually move on to it. So UVs, so let's imagine this is our two, this is our profile on the bottom, and this is our driver curve on the left, and this is our UV space. So what we do is we calculate the total perimeter of our shapes. So let's say that our uh, profile will be U and our driver curve will be V. So this perimeter is our final destination, it's our final value for U and V. So if we give like um, kind of actual values, so it's easier to imagine. So let's say that the bottom one is total of 16 and the top one, every single piece will be just one unit, so it's 11. So our u will become a total of value of 16, and v will become a total value of 11. This is kind of, if you imagine it's kind of, kind of a top down and you would have to walk around the shapes, this is how much distance you would walk. And that is actually what we are doing. We are walking point by point, so we start from zero and we go to one, and we walked three units. And we just recorded in the u, sp u space as well. We say, okay, we walked three out of 16. So record that, so the point number one will get three out of 16 on its u. And we do the same for the driver curve, where we walked only one of 11th of the total perimeter we have to walk. And we just walk until we reach like the starting point. And by that point, we should kind of full, uh, not fulfill <laughs> our wheel completely. So we would walk 11 out of 11. And the same would go for our profile. We would walk 16 out of 16. And every time we walk, we kind of record those values. And once we have those values, we can just put it in the skin and it will create the UV uh, layout for us automatically. So how neat is that? <laughs> so that is actually would be it. <laughs> Thank you for listening and do you have any questions? Hello, yes, okay. <coughs> so when you were describing your plant simulation system, uh, you told us that it's very important that you completely understand how those plants work. Yeah. So that also reflected on the interface you provided. Mm -hmm. how, that, how, um, how did the users of your tool deal with that? Because I understand if you want to really know what this tool is doing, they also have to understand what's happening with plants. Yeah. How did that work out? That's a good question. I had the same question to my CG supervisor when I was building the UI. I asked him, like, maybe we should make it a bit more user-friendly. Maybe we shouldn't have just apical dominance, but actually say it's it's bushier or it's just more cone. And he was like, Nah, let's artists get educated. <laughs> 
So it's kind of answered my question. So I hope it answers you as well. Are you planning to publish this as a uh, tutorial? Good question. Now I will think about it. <laughs> Good suggestion. And let me know if you know a name for it, because I don't want to hold them as in. Hi. Hi. Uh, do you use uh, particle or simulation or uh, L system in your trees assets? No, no. Basically, no. the way it's constructed. Yeah, sorry? Only VEX? Yeah, it's like pure VEX. <laughs> it's only, um, no, like I was using Polyvire for the mesh preview, but in the end I also ended up writing custom meshing just because there were very specific cases that we needed to have very good topology. And um, yeah, it's, it is basically, it is kind of a very big loop, for loop, where we kind of iterate through every cycle and we update a lot of attributes and that's how the tree is built. So there is no L system, so simulation uh, in that sense. Pretty cool. Oh, I think there's someone on the over there. <laughs> uh, do you ever use the Python node for anything? Yes, uh, it, it, interesting question because uh, bef uh, initially I didn't know VEX, so I started Lake Houses as uh, purely Python. <laughs> but then I kind of started learning VEX and I rewrote um, a lot of it uh, with VEX. And now I use mostly VEX. I, I use Python only when I have to communicate with external uh, packages or I have to say something out. So this, uh, but when I work inside of Houdini, I just prefer just VEX, which and is faster. And when you were using the Python node, did you find it slowed things down quite a bit or? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is slower than VEX because VEX does multi-threading for you and Python doesn't. So this was my primary reason of switching to VEX. So you build these things and then you adjusted it with the art eye, right? Like you say, I would want more of that, and you yep. move that yep. over, and you move that over. Have you ever thought of um, doing a higher level thing where you actually um, have some art rules and then generate more pictures at a higher level? Yes, that would be a very, very nice project. I think, I think like, on, uh, personally, I'm very interested about uh, systems that can create finished pieces of art. But in the sense, it was a bit out of scope for this project. No, I realize. I'm just wondering. You yes, but yes. Okay. yes. <laughs> oh, there's someone there. Oh, good one. <laughs> Hi. Um, Hi. Can you talk a little bit about materials quickly? Um, mm -hmm. Were they procedurally generated? Mm -hmm. Procedurally generated materials. Um, uh, for materials, I really like using geometry attributes. Because when I generate something, uh, for example, for the, with the lake houses, I, for every beam had its own unique ID, the wooden beam. So that really allowed me to quickly create color, a slight color and value uh, variation. I also really like using uh, bounding box values. Again, with the lake houses, I could say where I wanted the moss and where like the wetness uh, because they were standing on the lake. So I had like slightly wet material on the bottom of the beams. So I could control it with the bounding box values. Here's one. Uh, is there any uh, recommended book for algorithm? Or, you know, like, hmm. how, how did you learn all these kind of stuff, like technique? <laughs> <laughs> hmm, good question, good question. Um, 
There is a good book that I've started re reading recently, so it's not really like that I started with it, but I discovered it recently, The Power of Limits, but it's talked mostly about uh, shapes in uh, natural, um, like the sh the, this kind of, how to, how to describe it, the rules that happen in a lot of um, like nature or architecture, this kind of repeating rules that we have, and I personally think that really it's really based on our own like biological um, development and evolution. But also like what really inspires me is I often really like to just analyze again my own thought processes. Or for example, once when I was um, uh, I was in a crunch and when I finished it, I had like uh, I was in a room and I looked around and it was just so messy. Like you know like it was a crunch mess room, and uh, I looked at it and I was like. There was very specific rules at the placement of things. They were exactly like, you know, because it's very easy. I would take something and I would just put it where my arm could reach. So whenever there would be a surface that would be kind of based on my height and my reach, there would be a lot of stuff. So it's, it's kind of these small things. Like I think this really helped you to um, create these algorithms when you just look around, if you know what I mean. And there's a question there. Can you throw the box to the, please? Thank you. Actually, it's uh, it's more of a follow up to to his question, uh, and I'm, um, I have I I came across this book called The Nature of Code, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I didn't write it, and I don't know who wrote it. Daniel Schiffman. So it's a plug, mm -hmm. but uh, but it's very nice for describing natural phenomena. Yeah, I agree with that. Anyone else? Okay, so I think that would be it then. <laughs> Thank you. Once again, want to say thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For coming all the way uh, across the world <laughs> to be here with us today and sharing your knowledge, which is oh so vast. So thank you again. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.